Hi, my name is Mark Chansky. I am the coordinator of the Reform Baptist Network, and we're holding here another Net Talk session. This is where we discuss topics related to Reform Baptist Network's purpose, and that is glorifying God through fellowship and cooperation and fulfilling the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. And this hour, we have with us uh, a good friend of mine and also an individual member of RBNet. We have with us uh, Dr. Jim Neuheiser. Jim, good to have you with us here this morning. Thanks, Mark. Glad to be with you. Uh, Jim uh, has a wife. Probably that's the most important thing about you. Her name is Caroline, and she is your helpmate. And I know Caroline also does a lot of work uh, alongside of you, and she's done writing herself. Jim himself is a man who has a, a demon. He is a director of the Christian Counseling Program and an associate professor of Christian Counseling at RTS, Reform Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He also serves as a director of the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. And Jim is a board member at both the Biblical Counseling Coalition and the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And as I said, Jim has been married to his wife, Caroline. How many years have you been married to Caroline, Jim? Almost 44. 44 years. And you have three grown children. Three grown and, children and four grandchildren. Oh, all right. All right. Praise God for that. And Jim, you've also authored a number of works. In fact, I have right here. Uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And this is a treasure trove of truth that I heartily recommend to any who are listening and watching. Also, you have a book called Money, Debt, and Finances, uh, one entitled Parenting is More Than a Formula. Also, smaller booklets as well. Help, uh, I want to change or help. My anger is out of control or help. Someone has been abused. You also have a smaller book on uh, financial crisis and also how to love difficult parents. So you really cover the landscape on a lot of materials here, Jim. Uh, the Lord has been so kind to give me those opportunities. Usually it's when I've been counseling and there wasn't a book yet answering the problems I was facing with people. So I tried to put something together myself. Yeah, Jim, and, and I've, I've mentioned to you in recent days how I, I view you as kind of a Benaiah-type character. Second Samuel 23, Benaiah says he, he went into a pit and slew a lion on a snowy day. In other words, there was a lot of uh, treacherous, slippery footing that he had to deal with, and it was dangerous. There was a high risk factor. And likewise, Jim, I think a lot of the topics that you address today have a lot of high risk factors. In fact, we're going to be able to talk eventually about uh, maybe the issue of the, the abuse pendulum swing. Boy, you talk about a situation where there can be errors on the right and errors on the left, a Scylla and a Charybdis, and the way that I think you fought so valiantly in, in these days at this moment in time in society. I'm really thankful that the Lord has raised you up for a time like this. Thank you. So, 
Jim, the, the topic that we want to address here uh, is biblical counseling ministry in the local church. But first, before we get to that, Jim, give us a little bio sketch. You're not you're not a Melchizedek in the sense that you have no genealogy at all. Uh, most of us know a lot about Jim Neuheiser, but but fill in a little bit regarding uh, where you came from, what the Lord has had you do, and then uh, what you're doing now. Sure. Um, I grew up in a family where my mom was in kind of mainline liberal Presbyterianism. My dad didn't like church. A friend invited me to church when I was in ninth grade, and it happened to be Believer's Chapel. Many people know S. Lewis Johnson, and mm -hmm. he was the preacher there, but Bruce Waltke, Hedden Robinson, Greg Beale, all these people were around in my high school, college years, early married years. I got a tremendous background there was probably converted when I was about 15 in that church. My mom started coming with me, and I think she was converted. Uh, grew up mostly in Dallas, Texas. Uh, went to Baylor University, got a business degree. My thinking was that 30 was when Jesus started his public ministry, so I would do a normal job into my 20s and then see what the Lord would do. I had the desire for ministry. Uh, I've known Caroline since we were 15 years old. But we got serious about each other. We went to Baylor together, and we were both 18. We decided to marry. We went through as fast as we could, got married. We were 20, 21. Um, and God's providence, after a couple of years of marriage in Dallas, where I was actually studying under S. Lewis Johnson, he had kind of a in-house seminary program going while I was working for what's now Accenture. We got sent to Saudi Arabia. And in Saudi Arabia, we were there for six years. I was, after a year, made the pastor of an underground church of about 25 nationalities, a few hundred people. And we're, we, I did that for five years while I was also working a normal job. Had a tremendous experience of seeing many people come to faith, gave me much more of a heart for missions, trained leaders who are now leading churches and ministries in countries around the world. All that happened when I was very young. I probably baptized 100 people my last couple of years there. Mm. Still keep in touch with many of them. Uh, got kicked out of Saudi Arabia, went to Westminster, California, helped to plant a church, Grace Bible Church in Escondido, still there. Uh, got involved in biblical counseling. Uh, Jay Adams, George Scipione, uh, wound up getting to teach some master's counseling for what's now IBCD. After 26 years at Grace Bible Church, one of my former interns, Michael Kruger, who's president of RTS Charlotte, invited us to come here. It's now been seven years we've been in Charlotte, where I've been a professor in counseling and involved in various other things as well. So that may be longer than you wanted, but it was as short as I could do. And Jim, you've also been involved in a lot of globetrotting activities. Where have you traveled in recent days? Uh, it's been an interesting time of life. One of the great blessings, our children are grown. Caroline has a degree in counseling. She's ACBC certified. She's a speaker and a writer. And so we go around together and we'll have conferences all over the U.S. And we've been in the Czech Republic and Germany very recently. Uh, Medellin, Colombia, Singapore, Jakarta, Indonesia, Merida, Mexico, just and with my job as professor, there's a lot of freedom to do this travel as long as I'm meeting the requirements of being in class and there are seasons where we're not meeting in class. So uh, we'll often, sometimes it's teaching in a formal setting, almost an international seminary setting. And 
sometimes it's teaching in church conferences or counseling conferences and we'll often have a breakout where I teach the men and Caroline teaches the women and so yeah we enjoy being together home is wherever my wife is so the traveling isn't so tough well we talked earlier how I know you told me you're turning 65 in just a few days and uh, the Lord has enabled you to be bearing fruit in older age. I won't say old age yet, Jim, but older age. So praise his name. He's faithful to his promises, isn't he? He's been very gracious. A big thing that really influenced our decision to come here. We were very comfortable. We were living in San Diego. We've been in the same church so long. But Psalm 90, teach us to number our days, establish the works of our hands. So as we we came here in our late 50s we were trying to guess as you know based on the limited knowledge we have how we could be most useful in this season of life and concluded this change was the best way to do that and here we are praise god for that jim let's get to our topic now uh biblical counseling ministry and the local church i, I really appreciate that blog that you put out a while back which is entitled, I'm sorry, but I can't be your pastor. And you open the blog this way. It says, while the Lord uses counseling ministries for good, one danger of relying on outside counseling is that it can become a substitute for the ongoing soul care offered by sound biblical churches. Ideally, People receive soul care in their local church. This is the best way for God's people to seek soul care as the elders slash pastors shepherd God's flock. That would be 1 Peter 5, 1 and following. And this would be aided by other mature believers, including gifted godly women who would counsel other women, Titus 2, 3 and following. And one advantage of this approach, you're right, is that church leaders should already know their sheep as opposed to outside counselors who must start relationships afresh. Those who've been living with the counselees have been watching the video, while the outside counselor are only able to see a brief snapshot of the problem. And another reason for counseling to take place in the local church is that the church has the necessary resources to help those who are struggling spiritually. And these resources include the public means of grace, faithful shepherds, and the entire body of believers who are gifted and able to help those who are struggling. And I even think of that element of uh, church discipline, whether it be uh, formative church discipline or corrective church discipline. So that's kind of the summary of what you describe as the importance of ministry in the local church. Expand on that a little bit for me, Jim. Sure. Um, I have the privilege of dealing through various networking with lots of different local churches, and I see two broad categories of failure. The most serious failure is there are many churches which have neglected the shepherding of their sheep and will send people, refer people to psychologists, even if they're Christians who are not really using the scriptures to help them. And there are just all kinds of problems because secular psychology and the way a lot of these people are trained, they don't understand who we are, what's wrong with us, what our purpose is, and how to help us. And 
they don't have the authority of scripture and so often we're sending people off to get terrible advice we're going mm. to, you know don't and so that would be the biggest problem and there are many churches where they trust the so-called experts on the outside and these experts are experts in something other than scripture and often have a worldview even if they personally are real christians who sincerely want to help people they've not been trained to use the bible to help people and often are bringing solutions that are interpreting problems in an unbiblical way and offering unbiblical solutions so that's the worst thing but there's another category and it would be more probably with the people who'd be listening to this podcast is there are many people who are convinced of biblical counseling many pastors who are convinced of biblical counseling but they don't want to do it and it may be because they don't feel like they've ever been trained most seminaries only have one course in counseling and often it's kind of a theoretical survey where if you were as ill-trained for preaching as you were for counseling you probably wouldn't feel comfortable preaching either and so that would be one problem some preachers are afraid because counseling would take away from the importance of preaching there was even a mini book written by reformed baptist many years ago critical of counseling because it competes with preaching and i would say counseling and preaching complement each other the more you counsel the better preacher you will be because you know your sheep and their real problems and the more you preach the better counselor you'll be because you've done in-depth exposition of scripture which you can use when you meet with people but so one of my problems even here in charlotte it was the same when we were in southern california is there are many pastors in this area who say yeah i love biblical counseling i love what you're doing i'm so glad i can send people to you and i'll say send me people that i can train I don't have the bandwidth to counsel your people anyway and you know first peter 5 acts 26 shepherd the flock of god you're called to shepherd the flock of god and they would like to hand off their they want biblical counseling but they want to hand off their cases to us or they want me to start a counseling center and employ people and there are centers like that and as you already read in my blog i'm i'm thankful to god there are places where biblical counseling is being given and you know I ran a ministry like this in Southern California uh and there are so many churches that will never do biblical counseling it's good that needy people may find counsel that way but it's second best you know, the best would be for the local church itself to be have people who are equipped and committed uh trained to do this kind of counseling um and sometimes again they're they're reluctant to do that for various reasons Jim let me pull on a couple of strands on what you just said that was so insightful your analysis there one strand would be uh D Martin Lloyd-Jones book Preachers and Preaching is classic and in that book he he gives the account of a woman who approached him after a sermon she just began attending Westminster Chapel and she said uh Pastor Lloyd-Jones, I would like to be able to have a counseling session with you. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones' response was, well, I understand you'd like to have a personal counseling session with me, but I do believe that it's the preached word of God that really is the fundamental medicine for the flock of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, he said, I want you to listen to my ministry publicly for six months, and then you come back and you interact with me about the possibility of personal counseling and, and Lloyd-Jones said she stayed among us she listened to the public ministry of the word the means of grace and as a result she 
felt her soul was cared for and she never returned for personal counseling. Now respond to that and the dynamics of that. Yeah, I am familiar with Lloyd-Jones writing about counseling and preaching and preachers, and I refer to it in some of my classes. He acknowledges that sometimes what he calls personal work is necessary. And so I would say that it goes both ways. I think good preaching can eliminate some of the need for counseling. But I think some people take that too far, saying, well, it's just the job of the Holy Spirit to make application. And if people just sit under the public means of grace, then they'll be taken care of. That is true in some cases. But in some cases, the faithful preaching of the word will actually lead to counseling, where you're speaking about Naomi, and she's hopeless in Ruth 1. And there are Naomi's among us. And you know, maybe some people can sit and wait for six months. There's some people who are in crisis. There's some people who are overwhelmed. And maybe some people have been in the church for years and they're deeply struggling. And, you know, Paul was a shepherd both, he taught the word both publicly and from house to house. Publicly alone wasn't enough even for him. And so, again, I don't disagree with Lloyd-Jones. I even agree that preaching is a priority above counseling. That was my, even when I was running, helping run a counseling center, I spent more time on preaching than I did counseling, but counseling is also necessary. And like I said, it, it, and I think you can take it too far just to say, well, the public ministry of the word will solve everything. I don't think the Bible teaches that. Yes, yes. That's, that's really helpful, Jim. Uh, another strand I want to pull on is the pastor who has someone come to his office or give him a telephone call and express a problem that's taking place personally, maritally, familiarly. Just, just an example. Uh, a pastor of a state out west was telling me a while back about how uh, his teen son had begun to struggle with same-sex attraction. And he expressed how it's he his thought was that it was necessary that the son would receive professional counseling i've got to get him to some professional counseling and then a friend had come to him a fellow pastor had come to him and said well wait a minute now check yourself here what do you mean that this individual needs professional counseling you you counsel your people every week with group therapy sessions on the Lord's Day, every time you preach the Word of God, you're giving counseling sessions. And 2 Timothy 3 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. And why is it that you disqualify yourself? You are a, you are a pastor. The Lord has equipped you to shepherd the flock. And why would you think that you're his own son? needs professional counseling and it just jogged him to realize wait a minute I, i'm ministering the word of god and this idea of sexual purity is really in some ways a, a common garden variety sin that the people of god battle with yes and then he reported that he was able to go and work with his son over a number of months and god wonderfully helped that we respond to that kind of disqualifying ourselves I, I i'm not qualified i'm not a professional right so the professional help also can be kind of have two branches some people think professional help is you have some kind of medical or at least psychological background 
from the world, from the world's perspective, that may be worse than nothing. <laughs> and so that's one aspect. There are many people in the church say, well, you need to be state licensed or you need to be, um, you know, have a degree in psychology. Well, if you have a state license, you're not in most jurisdictions allowed to counsel someone who's struggling with same-sex attraction to try to help them overcome that. The standards of conduct for your uh, professional licensure forbids you from doing that, which is why I don't want to be state licensed. On the other hand, there are some cases where you just think, you know, you're a young pastor, you've never dealt with a particular problem. So here you are, you're 30 years old, and a mother comes in with her daughter, and her daughter, 13-year-old daughter, is losing weight drastically. She's anorexic. She wants, you know, and, and, and you've never faced this before. And I think there can be a place for finding, even outside your own church, wise, experienced people who can help you work through some of these things, not to hand it off to them, which is our temptation, is fine. You take care of this and bring them back to me fixed but at least to engage with you. A lot of what I do is consulting, and I'm not advertising for that now. I'm kind of busy, but uh, yeah, where rather than taking over the problem, but did, well, here are some resources, or let's talk through how to deal with this kind of problem. Just like you said, Mark, same-sex attraction is like heterosexual lust that other people deal with, and and yet because of culture now, there are probably things that people have learned dealing with that particular problem, or you go to brilliant people like Rosaria Butterfield. And, and so I think there can be a place for people who know a lot about something coming from a biblical standpoint who can help us either through what they write or through personal interaction and occasionally to engage in counseling. But even then, like if a church in the area has a problem, they're way over their head and it's all, it's much more Caroline in demand than I am in our situation. Uh, Cause it seems to be more women than men anyway. Uh, I think a good solution is, well, could you send one of your mature ladies with the woman to help so that she can see how Caroline does this and she can participate? Because even from the title of the blog, part of what I was getting at is counseling relationships outside of your local church are by nature temporary. I can only handle so many outside cases. Caroline has like 20-something people she's dealing with, not every week, but on her list. And when she finishes with one, she's got a waiting list of other people outside who want help. And so part of successful counseling is to get these people tied up with somebody in their local church who can carry on the discipleship relationship because they're only, you know, in terms of people outside my church, I don't have the same bandwidth to take, you collect more than you can handle. And I even use Hebrews 13, 17 to kind of deal with my struggles over this is I'm going to give account to God, particularly for those entrusted to my care. And somebody from some of the church is primarily the responsibility of those elders. So I'm more about helping those elders to fulfill their responsibility than taking it over on their behalf. Yeah, well said, Jim. And I think uh, I've heard you talk about how often pastors think this is just so messy I don't want to get involved in it, but often the very messiness that these individuals or these families or marriages are experiencing, it's the church that has the very tools to deal with that messiness. And you even mentioned the idea of, of church discipline. Is that pretty significant when it comes to holding people accountable? And only the church has that tool as opposed to a, a counseling center. 
Yes, I think that along with many other tools, but there are some situations where like Caroline is counseling a couple of women where the husbands are church members of not our church, but other churches. And these husbands are horribly derelict in their duties. They're mistreating their wives. And Caroline has actually had conversations with the sessions, Presbyterian Word for Elder Board, of these churches, uh, pleading with these men in her own humble way to hold the husband accountable through discipline, because we can't do that. And so it often comes up when people will not listen to wisdom. I mean, there, there's some situations that were required, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, to that process, which you hope will be restorative. But it's also what comes up quite often is it's for the protection of the innocent, where if there's adultery or abuse, that the process of church discipline will give some protection and perhaps even would be used to change the spouse for the sake of the innocent party. But that's not just, that's not the only tool. There is discipleship, there's hospitality, there's the fellowship of home groups and relationship. And just as you said, a consistent feeding in, the, in a solid exposition of God's word and the Lord's Supper and and all the things that uh, the church brings to bear, the relationships. Paulison uh, would write about how the psychologists envy us because of all the structure we have to help people. Yes, yes. The, 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 the Lord Jesus says, I've, I shall build my church. I mean, the, the carpenter came to build the ideal counseling center, yes. which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, where there's the apostles' teaching, there's the breaking of bread, there's fellowship, there's prayer. This is the nurturing family for the souls of the saints. Well, Peter says, Second Peter, that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness, and to use an illustration, the church is the emergency room, it becomes the rehab center, and then it becomes the place where the person who was once very needy is able to serve others and to be a blessing, which is often the very best thing, the best outcome for their own soul. So yeah, we have this community that no one else has. And actually, Rosario Butterfield talks about how the homosexuals create a, well, she would almost see as a, a counterfeit of the church in the way they try to care for each other in those false communities. But we have the true community, and we have the Holy Spirit working in the lives of people so we are greatly advantaged, which we get back to the fact that if you think you need outside help, it should be help for the church to do what it's supposed to do, not to hand somebody off and you just, okay, bring them back when you fix them. So, so don't you think there's also an element of members of a local church feeling like they don't want to divulge the messiness of their own lives because they're trying to preserve their image among their fellow churchmen. Yeah, that, that's a great issue, Mark, because we often have people saying, I don't want my church leaders, I don't want my friends to know about my mess. And so I'd like to meet, especially it's couples with bad marriage, and they, they want to keep the image of everything being great. Uh, even for them, you know, the Hebrews 13, 17 says, it's your elders who keep watch over your souls. Your elders are the ones who know you already, like the snapshot illustration you gave earlier. 
So sometimes it is overcoming that. When we do intake, both at IBCD and at RTS, when people come asking for counsel, one of the questions we ask on the front end is, what have you done with your church to try to resolve this problem? And uh, we get various answers, but that's a priority for us as we try to engage with people. Yeah, I think of going, I, I have a certain chiropractor that I'll go to occasionally, and for me to not divulge to him that I've got this pain in my lower back just doesn't make much sense, does it? Because he is the, he's the physician for my body. And likewise, pastors and fellow believers are physicians for our souls. Yeah, I mean, the problem will be the shame. Um, you know, there, there can be some medical issues. We don't know what people we see every day to know that they have, especially for older men. But uh, I think that we have to overcome that. But I, I can sympathize with the idea. I'll tell you the biggest category I see that in is pastors and elders, where, <clears throat> like, I have an appointment later today with a pastor of a fairly large congregation, and he's having significant issues. And there's no one in his church, the way their leadership structure is, he doesn't really have peers in the church. He's the big kahuna. And to make himself vulnerable to subordinates and maybe even fearing you know, losing the respect of people or even perhaps giving grounds for some kind of rebellion or mutiny because of his weaknesses, uh, or often they just don't have anybody in their own circle whom they respect sufficiently who could have the oomph to stand up to them or tell them what they need to hear. Now, I think a genuine plurality of elders with mutual friendship and accountability where we can be transparent about our struggles is a biblical solution for that rather than going outside. Uh, but that is a really common problem. A large percentage of the counseling Carolyn and I do are is with ministry leaders and their wives or yeah, future ministry leaders and their wives. Uh, and the, the line we hear, and actually Caroline, the, the thing she hears most often in counseling, and we kind of laugh when she tells me about her cases, is I have no one else I can talk to. You think of mm -hmm. a husband's wife, where if I share with someone in the congregation, am I undermining my husband's respect and authority in the church? Am I sharing something shameful? She's suffering. And it's often pastors and their wives who wait way too long. They they hide the problem and pretend. And I think Paul Tripp's book, Dangerous Calling, does a great job of bringing that out. And so by the time they seek help, they're in a bad way. Again, my answer, just like I think all churches should do biblical counseling, therefore counseling centers should be unnecessary, but they're still going to be necessary because it's not going to happen. I think all churches should have a plurality of elders who are genuine co-equals, and they should be transparent and accountable with each other, but I won't be able to make that happen in my lifetime either. Yeah, Jim, this is such a delicate issue because obviously James 5 speaks of confessing our sins to one another, that we might be healed, and that's an important part of the Christian life. Uh, certainly, when, when the apostle says that, that he is the chief of sinners, he means it. And likewise, people who are pastors and leaders, uh, Diane and I, we've been married for 41 years. And uh, this woman married to such a sinner like me, are there conflicts in our marriage? And have there been over the years? You know, I think now we're at the empty nest stage and a lot of the conflicts that the children 
in the dynamics of the household brought a lot of tension and, and a lot of that is gone and it's a sweet tranquil season comparative in life but but there were times and frankly i diane and i needed someone to come alongside us and help us and 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 but in the, even in a context like that there could be the tendency for us to shoot our own wounded instead right. of heal well that mark and diane they they had pastor uh uh counseling and so that must mean that they need to be disciplined in some way or respond to that dynamic jim yeah um i do agree that this is a fear that leaders have is if you admit you have struggles which is the whole culture of the church and the culture of the leadership and if you get to the point where the church doesn't have a gracious culture and is not you know able to deal with this and then there's a crisis it's really not the time to try to change the culture of the church but i will say like speaking of myself and i'm not always the greatest example of things but i've been pretty transparent about the struggles we've had we've been transparent about the fact that uh i've had to seek caroline's forgiveness for different things I've, and also that we've had to seek counsel from others and i think within our church actually both in california now here in north carolina where i'm one of the elders i think nobody would be surprised or bothered to hear of one of the elders having a struggle and seeking counsel and seeking restoration i mean obviously there are some issues that are potentially disqualifying that pastors try to hide they're afraid people will find out and that's another challenging issue but for struggles that people who are qualified or even i would say like i had a struggle at one time where my fellow elders told me essentially and it was dealing with our kids that you're not disqualified you've tried to be faithful but if you don't get on this you could be disqualified and i completely opened up with them about some of the things that were going on in our house when our kids were teens and some of the things I discovered and I, I realized that I'm make I'm laying myself out there but I trust these guys that if they think I need to be suspended or I'm disqualified I trust their judgment and as it was they were merciful and they said they thought I'd you know tried to be faithful but they also said no travel you know less pulpit do what you need to do to care for your family which was great counsel at the time and I would say in spite of that was a that being a difficult time for us I think it was a good example of how things could work in a local church where someone has even significant struggles and then the leadership bears that together and counsels one another and in your life no doubt the comfort with which you were comforted you now are able to comfort others by exercising that same kind of compassionate do unto others forbearance that you received yourself that's my desire I think yeah, that's another topic, but the yeah, the suffering we've had with children who haven't walked in the way we sought to train them. I mean, they're all we have good relations with them and they're responsible adults, but they're not walking with the Lord has been our suffering. And I probably would lack compassion. I know I would lack compassion if we hadn't had something like that. Jim, with just a few minutes we have left, let me let me hit a couple of three other points of, of significance. Uh, when it comes to counseling within the church, you talk about training other people to be counselors. And I think that's really important because it's the body of Christ. And 
their, their hands, there are feet, there are elbows, there are ears, there are eyes, there are noses in the church, and different people, Every, everybody, all hands on deck in the church is what's crucial, even older women teaching younger women. Uh, and so people getting certified to be counselors, that is a great endeavor. Nevertheless, I almost think of, uh, oh, there can be a phenomenon of, let's say, a young man going off to seminary, getting his degree, and being a, a, a resident academic in the church, but he doesn't really meet the qualifications to be a leader, though he does have that academic certification. Now, can that also happen in the area of counseling, where someone goes off and gets their counseling certification, and uh, I guess I suppose the point I'm asking is, how do you select the people? among a church to pursue that credential or that status of being a counselor? Is it simply those who've been interested in going to get the certification? Or no, it's individuals who are peculiarly qualified and gifted, like even a, a Titus 2 for women or a 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 for men. Respond to that. So you asked a lot of questions in your question that time, Mark. I think that it certainly is wise for church leaders to have some way to identify people who appear to have gifts and maturity to be the Titus II type women. You know, I think of the example in Exodus where Moses' father-in-law said, you need to get more people than you doing this. Yes. There are the point is they need to be equipped. And so certification, you can, like you said, somebody could get ACDC or IBCC. ACDC certified or have IBCD certificates and not have the maturity they should have. And there are many pastors who've never jumped through those hoops or great at counseling. There are many godly women who do a great job. Analogy would be Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones didn't go to seminary and they were decent preachers, like the best of their century in English. Um, and yet many people have benefited from the formal training. And so formal training has benefit, but it's not a guarantee. Something that like in the ACDC certification, and then I may want to talk more about IBCD in a moment, but we do as well. As part of the process for those who want to be certified or get a certificate is a lot of interaction with your local church. And so you can't, it's not like you go off and get a diploma and come back and say, I'm certified. You can't even get certified unless your local church affirms that you have these gifts and qualifications. Now, maybe churches just automatically check off like people do with a lot of letters of recommendation or something, but it is built into the system. Uh, and you also made a point. There's some people who are interested in counseling who probably need counseling more than they need to be counselors. <laughs> Although sometimes people who have had great blessing in biblical counseling, including some of the key leaders in our movement now, are people who got biblical counseling earlier in life. It, it was life transforming, marriage transforming, and they are mature gifted people now and they, they make a great contribution. I will mention something about different kind of levels of training briefly. I think that you know, there is the formal education to get a master's degree at a place like where I am at RTS or Southern. Uh, there are other programs that do master's degrees. There's a great deal of work involved in that. There's, there are even doctorates of different kinds, and 
that's a great thing to do. It's for a very few. ACBC probably has the next hardest level where you take a class, you read thousand pages, you take exams that are 70 pages long. The great thing about ACBC is you do supervised counseling with a mentor, which is a great way to learn. It's a biblical way to learn. It's discipleship. Uh, IBCD offers training for ACBC, but we also have what's called certificates, where you take a shorter test showing that you understand the material, so it's not just auditing the class, and then you have to be with your church leadership and talk about what you've learned and how you would like to use it in the context of the church. Uh, we, like IBCD offers this online training some churches use, and just to give you an estimate, I'd say like if 30 people take the class, there may only be one or two who get ACBC certified. There might be 10 who get certificates from IBCD, and then there might be whatever the rest is, 18, 19, who benefited, they're better equipped, but they're not, they didn't go to those other levels. But you'd like to have a church where many people are thinking in terms of biblical peacemaking and wise conversations with each, with each other on whatever level is possible. Jim, one last question. We could go on for hours, Jim. You and I talk, and, and I find you to be a fascinating interaction. But a woman uh, told me recently, she said, you know, uh, over my life, and this woman is about early 60s, she said, over my life, she said, at least five times I've come home from my OBGYN appointment with a prescription for a psychotropic drug to somehow emotionally stabilize me. And she said, I'm so thankful that I never used it. Respond to this. As a pastor hearing this, I came back from my OBGYN and I have this prescription for Prozac. Right, so point one is because I'm not a medical person, I ought to be humble when it comes to the question of physiological issues. I have friends who are biblical counselors and medical doctors who would say there are situations where medication can help the symptoms of certain people diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar one, where there seems to be evidence there are physical malfunctions in the brain. And if medication can bring that under control or stabilize moods, that might be helpful. I'm not qualified enough to know whether it does or doesn't, but I can't say I know that it doesn't. Uh, even many medical professionals, psychiatrists are acknowledging that psychotropic drugs are way overprescribed and that people aren't accustomed to sadness or difficulty. My friend, Dr. Charles Hodges has written a book called Good Mood, Bad Mood. But his point is most of what people call depression is ordinary sadness due to loss. And it's the way God made us. And it's not a chemical imbalance. I would add also that in the psychiatric community, the chemical imbalance theory, while it sounds plausible and sells a lot of stuff on TV, is actually completely disproven scientifically. It doesn't mean there's nothing wrong with people, but they don't do some test of your serotonin level and say, ah, you need this much Prozac. It's, you know, hit and miss. So I think taking those medications is a matter of Christian freedom. I, as a pastor, should never tell people to stop. Uh, they need to do that. It can be dangerous to stop without a medical doctor's uh, care. And yet I do think it's way overprescribed. 
And I think sometimes people are looking for a physical solution to a spiritual problem. I think the people prescribing them don't have the category for spiritual interventions. Often the doctor spends five minutes with a patient who says they feel crummy and just is very quick. Not, you know, if you're going to dispense powerful medication like that, even if you're not a believing doctor, it seems like you'd have to spend an hour or two with somebody to get to know them to see whether that's a good idea. So there's a lot of bad there, but I think we have to be careful to be humble to say we don't know enough about the body and medications to know when they might be helpful to some people. And Dr. Hodges in his book says that even the research shows that people who are mildly to moderately depressed, the medications probably don't help at all. But for people who have severe clinical depression, the medications can help to stabilize mood. And in some cases, that makes them more counselable if they're absolutely forlorn. So we need to be humble. I think we can see general trends, but we need to be very careful and humble when uh, dealing with particular situations because the person with whom we're speaking may be in that small percentage who might be helped. And we just, we don't have that comprehensive knowledge. I will sometimes, if I think the spiritual problem has been addressed or better understanding has been gained, I might go so far as to raise the question, have you thought about whether you need the meds? And I would, but don't flush them. That's dangerous. But you, you know, if this is how you feel, sometimes they say, I don't think I need this med anymore. So we'll go to your doctor and ask him how you can gradually taper off safely to see if now you've dealt with the underlying problems. The, the medication in the cases where it works only deals with symptoms, not causes anyway. And so, you know, if, the, if we can address the spiritual problems, like Lloyd-Jones talked about spiritual depression, so spiritual depression is the problem and the spiritual issues are addressed, A, the medications may have been unnecessary all along, but B, if they're on the medication, uh, they may have dealt with the issue spiritually and they may not want the medication. Jim, well done. You, true to your Benaya name, I threw you into a pit on a snowy day and you slew the lion. Well done. I, I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for the time that we've spent together. Uh, Jim, again, I know you're, you're globetrotting and going so many places. I'll just say, may the Lord bless you, keep you, turn his face towards you, grant you peace. May his uh, sun shine on your face and may his wind be at your back. Thanks for being with us, Jim. Every blessing. Thank you, Mark. Godspeed.